Romans chapter 11, 33 through 36. This week I took my ninth grade class on a field trip to New York City. We saw the musical Wicked, an excellent show. The question is asked early on, where does wickedness come from? Are we born wicked or is wickedness merely thrust upon us? I, I praise God for whoever aimed the fan at me, but unfortunately, my Bible can't take it. So thank you. Are we born wicked or is wickedness really thrust upon us? The Bible is unambiguous in its answer to that question. Since the fall of man in Genesis 3, all men have been born wicked. And it is only because there is a God who loves the wicked and who's determined to save people who do not deserve it and do not want it, that any of us have any hope at all. But our message today is not on the wickedness of man, but on the purpose or end of man. Why do we exist? We are looking at Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I'm supposed to give a subtle visual cue to the person with the clicker. <sighs> Thank you. <sighs> My uh, oldest daughter is taking some very difficult English classes that have extremely strict stylistic rules. Far stricter than I use in grading at my own school, frankly, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> Stylistically, this is a rather weak sentence. Starts with a conjunction, ick. <laughs> Lots of pronouns. From him, through him, to him are all things. Pronouns are weak words. Lots of prepositions from, through, to, also very weak words. And God forbid a linking verb. So, although, uh, you know, on first look, you know, stylistically, this isn't the strongest sentence in the Bible, it is actually one of the richest sentences in all of Scripture one of the most doctrinally rich and justly one of the most famous verses in the Bible. And if, uh, if you don't have it underlined, if you don't have it laid up in your heart, I guess if you leave today with this sentence uh, stored up in you and impressed upon you, I will be satisfied. For from him and through him and to him are all things. 
I need the next slide, please. When Paul says that from God are all things, he is, of course, talking about the doctrine of creation. He means that God made everything. When he says that all things are through God, he's referring to two doctrines, providence, meaning that God actively controls everything. He isn't simply watching what happens, but it all happens through him. And also, of course, the salvation of man. Uh, we do not save ourselves. Our salvation is also through him. So everything that happens, the, the events of life in general, the salvation of sinners in particular, is all through God. Uh, very important doctrines, but we're not focusing on either of those today. We're actually focusing entirely on this one today. To God are all things. And this is the doctrine of telos, or ultimate purpose. Uh, telos, Greek word for end, or purpose. Uh, you know that the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If you do not know this use of the word end, then, well, that's something else for you to learn today. The word end has an older meaning. It's not really used that way in English anymore. It means telos or purpose. And if any of you are philosophically minded, this is where the branch of philosophy known as teleology comes from. In my philosophy class last quarter, I taught my students epistemology, metaphysics and ethics. There is actually more to philosophy. There is a, this branch teleology as well. We'll have to save that for another grade. But we are discussing it this morning. Oh, if I could have that slide up a little bit longer, please. Thank you. If I were to ask you the question, how do you know that God made everything? I mean, obviously, a logical place to go is Genesis 1. But this verse is worth considering in your top five anyway. All right, how do you know God made everything? From him are all things. And if I ask you, how do you know that God controls everything, that he is sovereign? You know, again, I encourage this to at least be in your top five list of, of verses. Through him are all things. But if I ask you, what is the chief end of man? And you say the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is verse number one. Okay? This is the most important verse in the Bible on that topic. Just this little phrase, to him. To him are all things. I have a copy of the catechism here. And if, if you have a copy, you know that it has little scripture uh, proofs the, the uh, divines put in, and sure enough, that is the main proof that is used in the catechism, is this verse, for from him and through him and to him are all things. What we are uh, discussing this morning, of course, is the fifth sola, soli deo gloria. I could have the slide of the five solas, please. This is our final week on the solas. And this is the one we're talking about today, that all things are to the glory of God. All things exist for the glory of God, for his honor, that we live in a teleological universe, meaning a universe that has a purpose. It is not aimless or random. And in fact, that purpose is theocentric or God-centered. It's all about him. It's all about God. Uh, everything that happens is ultimately to bring honor to him. The mundane events, the terrible events, the wonderful events, 
It all is soli deo gloria. Uh, one of the basic rules in, in teaching is uh, review, review, review. So I'd like to go through these uh, just for a minute here, and I'm not trying to insult your intelligence like I haven't been paying attention, or because uh, I like to hear the sound of my own voice, but uh, just because review is important, all right? So uh, allow me to uh, go through each of them. Sola Scriptura means uh, Scripture alone. We get our beliefs from the Bible alone, as Proverbs 30, 5 and 6 says. Every word of God is flawless. He's a shield to all those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. We do not need any other source of knowledge or truth to know everything we need to know about God and about ourselves and about how to be right with God. We get our beliefs from the Bible alone. Sola fide, by faith alone, meaning our justification is by faith and not by works. As Paul says in Romans 3, uh, this righteousness from God or this justification comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Uh, this contrasted with the idea that, that we can somehow earn uh, our salvation. And you know, just this past week in, in interactions with people and things I've read, I've been impressed afresh with how arrogant the world considers us. I mean, they really do think we are insufferably arrogant because we believe we're the only people going to heaven. Okay? Uh, the, the great irony of that is that we're the only people who don't believe you can earn a spot in heaven. Okay? So we're being charged with arrogance by people who think they are actually capable of earning their salvation. All right? There is a, it's, there's tremendous irony in being charged with arrogance by people who are actually arrogant, yes. Uh, there's no place for human pride in any of this, okay? I can't figure out the gospel on my own. I need God to reveal it to me. I can't earn God's forgiveness. I, I need someone else to secure that for me and receive it as a free gift by faith. I don't deserve it or merit. Sola gratia, our salvation is by grace alone. Uh, there's nothing special about me that made God choose me, decide to save me. I certainly don't deserve it. Can't earn it and can never repay it. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Solus Christus. Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a ransom at the proper time. Uh, in Sunday school, I use a barrel of monkeys. I don't think a barrel of monkeys is appropriate for the worship service, which is why I've never brought my barrel of monkeys to worship service. But uh, very simply with Solus Christus, we're, we're teaching that there's God and there's Jesus and there's us. And that's it. That's a total of how many monkeys? Okay, three. All right, all the little kids left, so I guess this is kind of pointless. <laughs> but uh, the, the uh, in, in contrast to that view, the, uh, the elder church, of course, teaches that there are many other monkeys in the chain, uh, many other mediators between God and man besides uh, Jesus. But according to the Bible, uh, we only have one mediator, we only need one mediator capable of bringing us to God fully and entirely on his own. And then fifth and finally, this sola, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. From him, through him, 
and to him are all things. Thank you. Friday was my uh, birthday in Christ. I became a Christian 22 years ago, praise the Lord. And I did not figure out the gospel on my own. God revealed it to me through the scriptures, sola scriptura. I did nothing to earn the forgiveness of God, received it as a free gift by faith, sola fide. Most definitely did not deserve it. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Sola gratia. The gap between me and God is infinite, but the work of Christ is more infinite. I need no one else between me and God to bridge that gap, solus Christus. If it really is God who saves sinners beginning to end, soli teo gloria, it is all to the glory of God. The, um, I need a tissue. The fifth sola is the hardest of the five solas to understand. It is a much broader concept. The reformers intended it to be a broader, all-encompassing category. The, their goal with the fissola, thank you, was to summarize the whole biblical message from the perspective of teleology. The reformers were really into philosophy. If you're not, that's okay, but they were. And they were, they were very interested in the topic of te- teleology or ends or purposes or, or uh, to put it simply, the meaning of life, the meaning of everything. And they felt the Bible had an answer to this question. And their answer was solely Deo Gloria. Why does anything exist? Why does anything happen? How can we sort of capture everything the Bible says in one phrase? Their answer was solely Deo Gloria. Philosophers talk about the difference between proximate, penultimate, and ultimate ends. So for example, uh, let's say you're studying for a test. Your immediate goal is to get an A, your long-term goal is to get into college, but your, you know, those might be proximate or penultimate goals, but hopefully, as a Christian, your ultimate end or objective in that is to bring glory to God. And actually, I really appreciate that about my wife. Uh, uh, she's actually better at keeping that sort of vision before our kids than I am, because I sort of get distracted by you know, how good the work is, and. Uh, what the grades are, and uh, she's constantly saying, you know, you know, did you glorify God with your work? You know, that is the goal. That is the, the final objective why you're doing this. It's not to get a grade. It's not to make someone happy. It's to bring honor to God, and that is what the sola is all about. Our final objective and everything is to honor someone else. When uh, I taught on uh, Solus Christus last month, I deliberately decided to uh, ignore the original reason that the 
solar was promulgated. The uh, original reformers were all interested in, you know, whether the pope and the saints and the priests were also mediators. We didn't really talk about that at all. Instead, talked about, you know, whether or not we even need a mediator. But today, I'd actually, I would like to focus on what the original reformers were thinking. They had sort of three main things in mind when they formulated this sola. If I could just mention each of those three uh, to you. And uh, the first was this. The, they saw a logical connection between these four and this one right here. And they were very eager to have people see that connection. Uh, in other words, if these first four are true, then it logically follows that this one must be true as well. Uh, and, well, they, they had come out of a church and a sort of a religious culture in which they felt that God was not getting the glory for man's salvation, that, that people were in one way or another trying to save themselves. And they just, they felt like their church wasn't theocentric, it wasn't God-centered in its understanding of salvation. And, uh, but if, if these are true, then, then how much of the credit does God have to get for our salvation? Yeah, I mean, he has to get all of it. And, and that is, was just sort of a driving motive in their minds to, to get that idea to sort of click, that God deserves all the credit, not just some of it or even most of it. Second of all, uh, the uh, original reformers got really, really angry whenever they saw people giving God's glory to someone or something else. They saw people praying to Mary, praying to saints. They saw people going to religious shrines and praying to those shrines. They saw them giving religious adoration to relics. They saw them elevating church leaders to uh, uh, a very high position and essentially worship. Now I realize that happens today too, of course, but um, they saw the glory of God being given to lots of other stuff and lots of other people. And that upset them, it made them angry. They had a jealous zeal for the glory of God, just like he has for his own honor. And they were determined to insist that the worship due to God not go to the creature. Yeah, that is the second reason they uh, made this the fifth and final uh, sola. And uh, a third, a third reason they came up with this as a way of sort of summarizing the Bible had to do with work. The Calvinist doctrine is that all work is done to God's glory, not just spiritual work. And it's, you know, you're growing up in a, in a culture that's heavily influenced by, the, by Protestantism, and, you know, it's, it's easy to forget what life was like 500 years ago. If you weren't a priest or a nun or a monk, your work was considered worthless. You know, uh, and, and you had to go through life feeling like you were wasting your time. And uh, that is a terrible burden for people to labor under. Every time you're plowing your field or washing dishes or changing diapers, to feel like what you're doing is a tremendous waste. And the real spiritual people, the people who count in the eyes of gods, are the ones up in the monastery chanting psalms. All right? And the uh, reformer said, no, all work is a calling from God, and it is all equally valuable in the eyes of God, and it is all done to the glory of God. And this was a revolutionary idea. The farmer in his field, the man working in his factory or in his cubicle, the woman taking care of her kids, they are doing spiritual work every bit as much 
as the pastor or the missionary, and the work counts just as much. And this, this uh, concept was so culturally transformative that actually, if, if you know, in the 1800s, uh, secular historians started looking at a map of the world and said, wait a minute, all the rich countries, you know, America, England, Germany, the Netherlands, they all seem to have something in common. Okay, those are the places where the Protestant church took hold. And they, and they were like, what is it about Protestantism that made these cultures prosper when, when all these other cultures didn't? And it was actually, ironically, a secular historian who discovered it, Max Weber, of course, and coined the term Protestant work ethic. All right, and, and he said, there's this, this Calvinist desire to honor God through your work, and it actually makes you work better. Okay, and, and it does. Uh, we were at the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, this week, and we looked at art from Northern Europe before the Reformation and after the Reformation, and the transformation in the artwork is amazing. You know, how, how quickly they start painting you know, scenes from everyday life. And, and they're, they're not presenting a secular worldview. They are saying that it all counts. It all matters. The farmer in his field is bringing glory to God through his work, every bit as much as the preacher in his pulpit. Uh, just a such an energizing and encouraging concept. It is all work is done to the glory of God. So those were the, the three things uh, sort of the, the original reformers had in mind uh, when, they, uh, when they made this the fifth sola. Now I'd like to suggest a couple of additional applications uh, of the concept that from God and through God and to God are all things. The first has to do with decision-making. If you would turn with me, please, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. My experience that is that when someone comes to me because they have a decision to make, sometimes they really want my help, and sometimes they really don't. They really just want a justification for a decision they've already made that they know is wrong, all right? But sometimes they are sincere. You know, they really do want to know the will of God. and. Uh, how do you make a decision uh, in any specific area in, in which uh, you know, God hasn't told you whether to turn left or turn right? Well, this is a very general useful principle being laid out by Paul here in 1 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 23 under the topic of decision-making. Paul says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Now, you, you probably have never doubted buying the meat at the store, but remember in their culture, essentially all meat in the meat market had already been offered uh, as a sacrifice to some idol, 
And so it could be, eating the meat could be understood as an act of worship of whatever god that meat, that animal had been offered to. Continuing at 27. Uh, if some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. A very useful principle in decision-making. Obviously, ask this question. Again, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, but it is a very basic question worth asking whenever you have a decision to make. What decision will bring glory to God, will honor him. We do not live for ourselves. We live in a theocentric universe. Our goal or telos is to honor him. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I hope you're all having a good day. The truth is I don't know. Some of you may be having a horrible day. I, I wish none of you ever had horrible days, but the truth is you're all going to. I hope you all have great days. Maybe you're having one right now, okay? Uh, probably you're all gonna have a few of those as well. Most of your days are just going to be ordinary. But I believe with all my heart that all things are to the glory of God. The ordinary days, the really awful ones, and the really great ones. And if you can think that way while you're having that day, you will honor God. You will honor God by being convinced that whatever you're experiencing, good, bad, or ordinary, is actually all about him. And somehow, I don't necessarily know how, but I do know that he's gonna honor himself through it. As John Piper says, God is glorified by us to the extent that we find our rest and satisfaction in him. And this is part of that, being convinced that to him are all things. If there is anyone here right now who does not believe this, just let me challenge you with this. You do not have a choice why you exist. You do not make yourself, God made you. You exist for a purpose. That purpose is to honor your creator. You have no choice in that matter. And he will bring honor to himself through you, one way or another. You do have a choice how he glorifies himself through you. Okay, would you rather have him glorify himself through your rejection and destruction on that day or through your redemption and your salvation?
Every person in this room will bring honor to God. I hope in every one of our cases, it is in a happy manner. Let's pray. God Almighty, we acknowledge you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be not simply the creator of the universe, not simply its ruler, but its end or purpose, that all things are to you. I pray that you would help us to think this way, to live this way, to think and live like this really is a theocentric, a God-centered universe. Help us to live God-centered lives. On that day, may you say to us indeed that we really did bring honor to you, our Lord and God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.